Hello, welcome to the New Stack Context, a podcast where we review the week's hottest news in cloud native technologies and look ahead to topics we expect will gain more attention in coming weeks. September marks the final month of the New Stack Context podcast. Starting October 12th, we're launching a new podcast series called Scaling New Heights on the New Stack Makers. Our guest host, Christine Heckert, CEO of Scaler, talks with engineering managers at the rapid growth companies that make modern life possible. Hear from engineering leadership at companies like Robinhood, Airbnb, and Nextdoor about the technical and human challenges their teams face at scale and how they survive the valley of despair. You can find our new series at thenewstack.io slash makers and subscribe to the New Stack Makers on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts from the New Stack. Last week, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation published its latest end-user technology radar. Each quarter, a group of more than 140 top cloud-native-friendly companies meet regularly to discuss challenges and nominate what tools they use. This quarter, TechRadar looks at observability tools. Today on Context, we invited Cheryl Hung, who's the CNCF's Vice President of Ecosystem, to discuss the latest findings in the cloud-native observability space. And to get an industry perspective, we've also invited Buddy Brewer, who is the General Vice President of Full Stack Observability at New Relic. So welcome to the show, Cheryl and Buddy. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Also joining us today are Joe Jackson, Managing Editor, Richard McManus, Senior Editor, and I'm Libby Clark, Editorial and Marketing Director. So Cheryl, can we just start off by getting our listeners up to speed on what the CNCF Tech Radar is and how it works? Hi Libby, absolutely. So the Tech Radar is really trying to answer the question, what do real people who are using cloud native see and recommend to other people. Um, The goal is not to try and be, you know, 100% objective about everything in the world, but just to take a very small slice and say, you know, let's look just at, in this case, observability and poll a series of companies and ask them to place the tools that they're using either as adopt, trial or, or assess, depending on what they recommend other companies to use. And so each quarter, CNCF is publishing one of these reports in the hope that it will help people who are adopting cloud native. So are all the, all the projects on that list that you're polling about, is it everything in the space or is it just CNCF projects? How's that work? It's really important to include more than just CNCF projects because the reality of it is not everything, people are using closed source projects, using vendor products, So the list of tools that are on the CNCF radar come from the end users themselves. So we collected this in just basically an open Google spreadsheet and said, add whatever tools you're using and vote whatever you see. So the idea is just to kind of cut down on some of the complexity that that end users are facing in choosing tools. Yeah. So every end user is going to face different set of problems because they'll have a different environment, they'll have existing infrastructure. So there's never going to be one perfect stack that works for everybody. But if you are looking at observability today and you're seeing, you know, 
30 or 40 different items, you know, thinking, where do I start? Where should I prioritize? Then hopefully this radar will give you a, an insight into what other people think. So what is the difference, diving into observability now, what is the difference between observability and traditional app? app monitoring? So I think of observability as having these three pillars. So monitoring is one, logging is another, and then tracing is a third. So to put it as a as a kind of metaphor, monitoring is like a security camera. So it will tell you something's happening. Logging is like the footage from the security camera. You know, you dive into it to figure out exactly what's happening with your application. Tracing I've not found a good way to fit into this metaphor yet. Um, Pacing is more about optimizing the paths that code is taking through your application that your users are taking. So they all have slightly different um, uses. They have different trade-offs. And most end users will start with logging and add monitoring and then tracing probably comes third. Right. And Buddy, so uh, New Relic has been working at the coalface of observability for quite some time. So what are the major challenges that you're seeing in terms of organization organizations adopting as observability tools? Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple of things. One, and this goes, I think, in large part to the, the point that Cheryl just made, is, you know, because applications are so complicated now, and there are so many different components that have to work together in order to deliver a user experience. The things that need to be observed are growing so fast that people can't instrument fast enough to keep up with the pace of the change that's happening in their architectures. And so they deploy logs where they can, they deploy monitoring where they can, they collect trace data where they can, but oftentimes they're not able to instrument everything. And I think this is one of the areas where the CNCF is doing really great work to democratize and simplify the generation of that telemetry so that people can do that. But that's that's a problem. It's something that that we've noticed as we've worked with our customers. And of course, we've been doing this for, for 12 years at New Relic. So we've seen a lot of this change as it's kind of come over time. So one is instrumenting fast enough to keep up with the pace of that change. But then another thing is the 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 instrumentation that people are able to deploy. Oftentimes what happens is you know people will use a lot of different tools to solve the different facets of this problem like Cheryl was just talking about. But then what happens is that data all lands in all of these different places and these different discrete data stores and databases and all of that. And so then what happens is a problem comes up in production. And because there's not a single source of truth to go to, to see all of the facets in one place, it takes a while to figure out what's actually happening, you know, to, to be able to go in and see that the camera says that something's happening and then go to a different place to review the tape and then a different place to do all of these different things. And what that does is it adds time to the meantime to resolution. Those are the two big challenges that I think we're we're seeing today. And again, you know, like I'm sure everyone here who's both involved in the podcast today as well as listening to this can probably identify personally with it's driven by the complexity in application architectures today. Right. And uh, Cheryl, one interesting finding in the report was that open source tools are dominant here. Uh, the three tools that received the most adopt votes were Prometheus, Grafana, and Elastic. Why is open source such a valuable thing for cloud native monitoring? In fact, I found it the opposite. I thought, why is it interesting that open source is dominant here? Because within cloud native, we tend to assume most tools that people use are open source. So what I found 
I mean, and that's for good reason, right? Open source is easy to adopt, it's free, it's fast to uh, try out. But what I think is interesting about this is that it shows that companies are investing their own team's resources, their own engineering effort into running monitoring. Of course, there are a lot of SaaS products as well, where companies have chosen to outsource it and not use an open source product. But I think that's what the, the radar reflects, that even though there is a perhaps preference for open source projects, there's actually a lot of SaaS products as well. Great. And uh, Buddy, can you talk a little bit about your company's commitment to open source? Um, how, how does that play in this space? Sure thing. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of parts to this. And we made a big announcement at the end of July, first of all, around our full commitment to open instrumentation. And so there's a, there's a couple of things that were involved in that. The first was open sourcing all of our existing instrumentation that users deploy on their systems. You know, again, like I said, you know, we've been at this for 12 years. There's a lot of agent code that we wrote at New Relic to solve problems before some of these open source tools existed. And, and you know, we they were part of the New Relic commercial platform. Uh, what we've done is we've, we've put all of that in open source. And that means not just that the code is available, but that we're operating, that the teams that are developing and extending the functionality of this are doing it in an open way where anyone can see you know, our plans. We're, we're adopting the open source project philosophy, not just the delivery of the code under an open source license. That's for the, the instrumentation that is our organically built instrumentation. There's a second part to this. And that's aligning to the main open standards that are in the industry. So open telemetry for service instrumentation, and then Prometheus and open metrics for infrastructure and, and metric instrumentation. And we're actually increasingly investing our own engineering resources, whereas it used to be we had our, our agent technology that we built in-house, an increasing amount of our investment in de actually developing that telemetry is going toward those open initiatives. Uh, so for example, you know, we're over the last few months, we've become a uh, top three contributor in open telemetry. And when you look at the, the reason why we're doing that and, and why it makes sense for a, a commercial company like New Relic, to embrace open standards, you know, obviously we want to meet our customers where they are. That's that's part of it. But another part of it is when you, when you think about from New Relic's point of view, where the barriers to growth for us are. And when when you look at where we have these opportunities to grow, it's not that all of this, we were talking earlier about complexity, that all of these different components are being instrumented by someone who's not New Relic. The real problem is that those components aren't being instrumented at all. There's so much software today that's just not instrumented. And so anything, this is where, you know, our interests at New Relic are so aligned with the open source community. The objective is to make it easy for people to instrument all of their software. And then, you know, the next step for us is to just make it easy for them, you know, subsequently to take that data and just send it into New Relic. But that has everything to do with aligning to open standards. And a lot of this stuff is already in place. There's so much Prometheus that's already deployed today, but there, but there's also a lot of software that's not instrumented. And so we want to help people instrument all of the aspects of the software that goes into creating these user experiences. So you think with all the, the numerous tools out there, they wouldn't have trouble instrumenting, right? <laughs> yeah, you would think that. But again, I think it, it comes back to the, you know, these companies 
are, are they're so busy actually extending their own software to do what they exist to do, right? To sell things online or, you know, to help people share content or view media or whatever it is that they do, that they just don't have time to also install all of this or to create their own instrumentation and all the rest, which is why it's so important that as a community and as a, as a member of that community, as New Relic is, that we make it you know, we take as much friction out of that process as possible so they can get back to doing what it is that they want to do, which is creating the user experiences for whatever their organization exists for in the first place. So Cheryl, that was actually one of the other findings from your Tech Radar report was that there is actually very little consolidation in the observability space. You see that plethora of tools. So what do you think is going on there? I think actually Buddy made a really good point about the open standards and specifications that are in this space and how that helps both vendors and users instrument more and more of their existing software, which is ultimately beneficial to everybody, leads to better user experience, leads to SREs being able to sleep at night, not being woken up at 3 a.m. by calls, being on call. So I think that this is fantastic and leads to a lot of innovation. At the same time, it makes it hard to see any patterns of consolidation because it's actually relatively easy or it makes it easy then to add a new tool to your existing software stack. And that's a good thing because each tool will have different strengths and different purposes. So what we saw from the radar is that most companies use five, six, seven different tools within observability. So then Buddy, what is the benefit of an organization to have a unified tool set, as you're saying? Yeah, our point of view, based on what we've seen from our customers, is that the benefit is simply the inversion of the challenges that I was talking about earlier, right? So instead of adding time to mean time to resolve, what if you could subtract time from mean time to resolve? Because, you know, let's say you see a problem with user experience because someone's complaining and you look at it and you notice that pages are slow, but it's not a front-end problem. And you can immediately follow that through, you know, following your trace data through two different services to get to the service that's actually slow. And then immediately from there, you can look at all of the infrastructure data that's telling you, you know, what the, the status of the infrastructure is, is actually running the service. And then the log events, those individual, you know, trace footage, right, that, uh, that Cheryl was talking about earlier is right there in context next to all of that. If all of that stuff was all in one spot and you could follow it through without having to pivot from, you know, data store to data store to go hunt for it, then it would take a lot of time out of meantime to resolution and you can get people back to having good user experiences faster. That's one benefit. But the, the second one is when you know that you can resolve problems quickly, it gives you confidence to move faster because you're not so afraid of failure. And so what we see is that customers who are of ours who are really good at this, they deploy software faster. Their, their software development velocity is higher. They're able to deliver more improvements to the core of what they do, you know, in any given month. And so those are, those are the benefits that we're seeing with the people that we're talking to. Right. And uh, Cheryl, another finding, and perhaps not a surprising one, is that Prometheus for data collection and Grafana for visualization frequently used together. So this is a, a cloud-native success story. There's no doubt about that. But any insights as to why those two different projects work so well together? As, as Buddy just said, like once you instrument something, you have to be able to view it, right? Otherwise, there's not much benefit to you if you can't view it. So I think this is a little bit of a chicken and egg kind of thing. Like 
these two projects happen to be both pretty early, pretty early on, you know, be pretty stable. And then people started adopting one and they found tutorials that said, okay, if you're using Prometheus, you should use Grafana. If they're looking for a Grafana tutorial, they'd find Prometheus, you know, as the backing behind it. So these two have really fed back onto each other and led to this feedback loop of both gaining success at the same time. Great, and, and Buddy, New Relic has brought uh, Prometheus and Grafana uh, to its users. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, the reason for that is simple. It's because everyone uses it. And there's no single company profile that there's an affinity for either. You know, I, you know startups, very large companies, cloud native, hybrid, it doesn't really matter. Like I think back on the customer conversations, I have several a week and, you know, over, over the last however many months and inevitably Prometheus comes up, it's in their ecosystem, they're using it. And so, you know, at New Relic, we, we delivered support actually to ingest Prometheus metrics a while ago. But one of the things that we delivered in right there at the end of July and a lot of this goes to the, the point that Cheryl just made, is that when you start to pull on that thread of, of Prometheus, as an example, and, and you start to talk with people who are deploying Prometheus, you find that Prometheus isn't the only thing they're deploying. They also have Grafana. And they go, you know, they go hand in hand and they're using Grafana to look at that data. They're, they're used to querying that data in PromQL is another major thing. And so what, what for a while we've had support to ingest Prometheus metrics. We have our own query language at New Relic that we invented a number of years ago, the, the New Relic query language. But, you know, customers who already know how to use PromQL want to use PromQL to query that data. And so we delivered support for PromQL as well as the ability to hook Grafana dashboards directly in in order to, you know, view the data so that you can use your existing dashboards, again, meeting people where they are, have already deployed all of these dashboards in Grafana go ahead and, and maintain support for that. And you can just point all of that stuff directly at a new data store where everything's unified in one place. But that's 100% driven by all of these customer conversations we find where people are, they're using Prometheus, but not only that, they're also using Grafana and they're in there querying things on a regular basis with PromQL. And it's really important to make all of that stuff easy. Again, going back to the point of, you know, the biggest problem today is that people aren't able to instrument enough of their of their software to understand what's happening on when there's a problem. Excellent. And Cheryl, so Thanos, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, has recently moved from Sandbox to Incubation. Uh, so can you explain what it is and why it's worth watching? Yeah, I mean, as Buddy said, everybody seems to use Prometheus today. And Thanos is really enabling high availability Prometheus and at scale. So this is something that smaller companies don't run into for some time, but as the complexity grows, as they want to observe more and more of their infrastructure, they also have to worry about the underlying storage behind this log data. So that's what Thanos is enabling. And as you said, it just moved from sandbox to incubation in August, 2020, which I think is a reflection of two things. One is that it's getting actual usage. You know, there are end users who are using this in production. And secondly, it's a reflection of the community of maintainers behind it. So it's now, there are maintainers from multiple different companies, and that is a sign of a healthy project that is hopefully going to be around for the long term. 
So I would definitely keep an eye out on that if you're interested in observability. So I want to wrap us up here by getting both of your final thoughts and hopefully you have some kind of uh, thoughts for each other as well, because I know you're sort of looking at it from a few different perspectives. So Buddy, what was your takeaway from this report from the vendor perspective? And do you have any questions for Cheryl about the tech radar? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We're looking through it, like looking at the three summary points at the end there. They, they all strongly align, of course, with what we're seeing, you know, because the, the, the thing I think the, the first thing that comes to mind in terms of, you know, what, what do we have in common is you know, we, we both want to help developers of software everywhere create better experiences for their end users. And so, you know, we talk to our customers about what's getting in the way of that. And, you know, one of them is the this issue of, what, like we were talking about earlier, you've got tools everywhere dumping data into all of these different places, and it becomes difficult to correlate across in order to get the benefits of you know full observability across the entire stack. And so that's an area that we're heavily invested in helping you know software developers everywhere improve, and doing that you know principally through the full embrace of open source technologies that are in use everywhere thanks to the work of organizations like CNCF there's a robust ecosystem of tools that people can use to instrument their software that simply didn't exist when New Relic got its start back in 2008. That's awesome. You know, we see the adoption uh, that's happening across all of the customers that we talk with, and, and we absolutely want to help with that. And, and that's why our strategic direction, the investments that we've made recently are, are all tilted in that direction. And finally, you know, in particular, like we're talking about this example of Prometheus and Grafana and how those those go hand in hand and, and engineers love those tools. The challenge is when you, you love it and you utilize it to the extent that it becomes difficult to actually manage and scale the storage underneath. And so, again, that's an area where because of the scale that we operate our data platform at, we think we can help. And, you know, that's one of those things that we're doing today with Prometheus and Grafana. And we're really excited to continue integrating with other open source techs. Awesome. Cheryl, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm really excited to hear how New Relic is engaging more in the open source community and and the benefits that you see, Buddy, as it brings to New Relic, as well as to end users. I think this is a virtuous cycle of you know, projects, vendors, and end users working together and collaborating together to build better software and deliver better experiences. So yeah, I just wanna say thank you to you, Buddy. So what is, what's next on the tech radar? Do you know what you're tackling next? So the tech radar is driven by the end user community, the CNCF end user community. Um, so we're right now compiling the team who are going to decide what that next topic is. So we should know in a couple of weeks time, so hopefully around October, and we'll release that next topic. Great. Well, keep us posted. We'll want to hear about it, of course, when you're ready. And thank you again for joining us today, Cheryl and Buddy. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you for hosting me. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. So Alex, what's your featured podcast this week? Why Frameworks Define Java's Cloud Native Future is our podcast of the week. On our show, we were joined for our discussion about Java with Alice Latini, who is with Datastax, and Christopher Splinter, also of Datastax. Here's what Alice has to say about Java and its current limitations in cloud-native environments. It was designed in a time where we were thinking about applications as full-stack. 
something that would be one large application that could be deployed to its own dedicated machine, whether physical or maybe even virtualized, but still with fixed resources with, with a certain allocation of resources dedicated to it. So in this kind of environment, you can afford having a heavyweight initialization and phase that does class loading and all the kind of startup configuration. This is a one-off cost. You can accept that. And you know, once the application is up and running, then you just go with it. And it just uses the resources that it knows it has at the most and makes the most of them. You know, when you think about a cloud native environment, this model doesn't quite work anymore in the same way because the resource availability is really different. Especially in cloud environments, the resource, the amount of resources that you have available varies over time. It's contended for. And containers and Applications in that context are really expected to work in a more on-demand fashion. Be started up quickly, do their job, perform their action, and then potentially be torn down quickly. So the startup time becomes a really important point. And the being as lightweight as possible in resource usage is also very important. And this is not something that comes naturally to Java. Also, Another point that has made things quite difficult so far has been the need for containers to work in, with a ring fence uh, amount of resources defined by C groups. And Java did not have any notion of that. So until Java 10, this was really a problem because it was hard to limit the JVM to stay within those bounds. So generally, I would say that the real issues that we currently have derived from the fact that Java wasn't designed to run in a cloud-native environment. So there is a lot of value in adapting Java to this because it has got so much richness of, of functionality and it's so well-known and it is a really reliable language. But to, to make it work well, we, these points need to really be addressed and it needs to be made more efficient so that it is more suited to applications that are more ephemeral. The real excitement about Java right now, in my view at least, is about these frameworks and what they may offer. For the legions of Java developers out there who are looking for ways to use Java in a more ephemeral environment. Thanks to Alice and Christopher for joining us in this podcast. Great. Thanks for that. Richard, do you have a, a story that you want to feature this week? Yes, on the topic of observability, there was a recent um, sponsored post come in by a company called Tundra, uh, which operates in the serverless ecosystem. And uh, one of the tools that they provide is observability in the serverless space. Um, and in this contributed article, uh, they pointed out that uh, serverless applications are particularly challenging when it comes to observability uh, because they are event-driven and functions are disparate, operate in isolation, and are highly ephemeral. So Tundra works on the AWS Lambda platform, um, but AWS and A AWS does have uh, some tools for observability. CloudWatch and X-Ray are a couple of tools on that platform. But uh, the article pointed out that those tools have are not entirely suitable, and that they don't provide a full solution, which you know that Tundra does do. So that's part of the offering that they provide. So interesting article about how observability applies in the serverless space, which, as we know, is is very fast growing. 
Awesome. Thanks. Job, do you have a couple of choices for us? Sure thing. Uh, a lot of interesting news stories on the newstack.io. Uh, we're still going through the many talks of uh, KubeCon uh, EU uh, last month, which, by the way, they're now on YouTube. I think most, if not all of them, are on YouTube. Uh, in this particular one, which was written up by Jennifer Reggins, uh, Google software engineer Samuel Davidson laid out the foundation of how to systematically reduce the risk vector of Kubernetes. Now, this talk primarily offered container security fundamentals, but it certainly had at least a couple tricks for even the most advanced orchestrators. Uh, one rule of thumb uh, that he laid out everything that's convenient to you as the administrator, as a Kubernetes administrator, also becomes convenient for the hackers. So he offered some tips. One was to make sure your containers are as simple as possible. Uh, so obviously, if somebody doesn't get in them, they aren't going to get much to work with to pivot the tech from there. This means wherever possible, using something called a dis distro-less base image, or don't use a container image that is based on a popular distribution, like Debian, for instance. Another tip, deploy your uh, continuous integration and continuous deployment platform to do signatures. The platform acts as a sort of locked door to Wonderland, only allowing trusted CICD robots uh, to sign images, uh, uh, Jennifer writes. And you could also uh, leverage the trusted signature pipeline across dependency validation, vulnerability scanning, and integration tests. If uh, your container doesn't have all these checks in place, it doesn't go into production. So there's those tips and a lot more uh, on these stories. So check it out. That sounds like a great talk. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of good security talks uh, on the on the site. On the, the Q, a lot of good QCon talks, security talks there. Yeah, and uh, a second story we had is about VMware. Now you might remember VMware as the giant of the virtualization movement ten years ago, and they've been doing a lot uh, on uh, Kubernetes as well through its Tanzu portfolio. And uh, this week it announced as part of uh, VMworld, it announced that it's coupling its vSphere virtualization platform with the Tanzu portfolio to help extend the workloads already running on vSphere into a Kubernetes ecosystem. Uh, this is uh, a number of interesting attributes. Um, Tanzu uh, integrates uh, the Kubernetes management capabilities uh, within uh, vSphere that will allow organizations to adopt and integrate Kubernetes into their vSphere working vSphere deployments. With, uh, it basically allows uh, administrators to deploy Kubernetes resources uh, using the vSphere controls. Meanwhile, the developer can consume the infrastructure uh, through the Kubernetes interfaces and APIs. So it's kind of uh, the best of both worlds. Uh, the spokesperson that uh, talked with us said that uh, this is the biggest re-architecture around a decade for vSphere. So uh, we've been seeing VMware do a lot in Kubernetes, and uh, it's nice to see it sort of providing fruit. You said it was part of VMworld. It's, I know that's happening later on this month. Yeah, it's a, a pre-announcement, yeah. Uh -huh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I know we're planning on co covering that event. It's uh, September 29th. Yep. Through October 1st online. So stay tuned for our coverage from that event as well. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us, Richard and Job, and to our listeners out there. September marks the final month of the New Stack Context podcast 
Starting October 12th, we're launching a new podcast series called Scaling New Heights on the New Stock Makers. Our guest host, Christine Heckert, CEO of Scaler, talks with engineering managers at the rapid growth companies that make modern life possible. Hear from engineering leadership at companies like Robinhood, Airbnb, and Nextdoor about the technical and human challenges their teams face at scale and how they survive the valley of despair. You can find our new series at thenewstack.io slash makers. Subscribe to the Newstack Makers on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts from the Newstack. Listen to more episodes of the Newstack Context at thenewstack.io slash podcasts. Please rate and review us on iTunes, like us on YouTube, and follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and see you next time.